Well, Pastor Glenn, the time is yours now to come please and tell us what Jesus had to say to this church in Thyatira. Good morning, everyone. Well, we are studying the seven churches of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, these were seven literal churches who needed to heed the words of Jesus. And, but these words also apply to every church in history and to the greater body of Christ at large. So we are now studying the fourth church is in the middle one, to the church in Thyatira, in Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 18 all the way down to 29. Revelation chapter 2, 18 to 29. We have already heard Jesus speak to the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamon. And now we are going to hear him speak to the church of Thyatira. Interestingly, this city was the smallest of the seven cities mentioned in the letters to the churches. It is also the city about which the least is known. And yet, it is to this little-known church in a little-known city that Christ addresses His longest letter. So out of the seven, this is the longest and probably the most severe of all. And so last week, you heard Pastor Caroline talk about the church of Pergamon. Uh, it is an example of the compromising church that is taking the first kiss towards sin. And then this today now, the church of Thyatira is a church that has completely gone to bed with idolatry and is suffering the life-threatening side effects of unfaithfulness. So the longest letter written by Jesus to the seven churches was necessary to correct what could very well be the most corrupt of all the seven churches. And I think you have seen a kind of pattern over the last couple of weeks on all these letters. There's usually a word of commendation and then a bit of correction, and then there's a bit of reward when you persevere through. So uh, pretty much the same kind of outlines. Uh, so I'll just want to give you four C's. And it is the third C that I will spend the most time and give you a lot of implications, five implications in point number three. So I just have a way to guide you uh, through. So the first, I won't read through the passage, just together, as I come to the point, we'll, we'll read the text. So it'll be good if you have your Bible open to chapter 2, uh, verse 18 onwards. First and foremost, the first C I want to give to you is the city. I want to mention something about the city. To be precise, actually, Thyatira is not a city. It's only a town because it is so small and uh, very little is known about that. And, and in some sense, Thyatira is almost like a, like a passing town. You know, you go to somewhere, you just pass through that town. Um, it is the smallest of the seven church cities. As I say, it is it's like a town. Uh, probably around 25 to 30,000 people. And the name Thyatira means sacrifice. Some say it's unceasing sacrifice. 
uh, it probably received this name because it was a military buffer city. It's almost like a military post, either uh, founded by Alexander the Great or one of the generals, uh, Seleucus. But it was located about 65 kilometers southeast of Pergamos, which is the capital city of that province. It is known as, the meaning means sacrifice because it's a buffer city. Because when enemies invade, they would naturally come to Tyatira first. While this location is, did not allow it to defend itself very well, its mission was just to hold the enemy long enough for the capital city, Pergamos, to prepare itself for battle. So as a result, Tyatira was destroyed and rebuilt many times during its history. And the city is unlike Smyrna, Tyatira was very blue-collar and unsophisticated in its demographic. It was a hard-working city full of labels guild. A guild is something that defined as an association of, of craftsmen and merchants formed together to promote the economic interests of their members as well as to provide protection and mutual aid. So there are a lot of this uh, guild there uh, in, in Tyatira, a bit like union in, in, in our current context. And they have leather workers, they have wool workers, they have weavers, bakers, tailors, dyers. You say that it's almost like a, it's called a dying city, as in D-Y-E-I-N-G. Um, as mentioned in Scripture in Acts chapter 16, there was a lady by the name of Lydia, a seller of purple, and she's from the city of Tyatira. So there's a lot of uh, girl there, a lot of this kind of association there, and, and usually workers from various industries of the city, bakers, wool workers, bronze workers, porters and others, all banded together to set prices, guarantee work. And so if you refuse to join a guild, it was to give up almost the possibility of a, a job. And I think this little fact will become important as we move through these verses later on. And it is also known that it was also a center of occult worship, although not as big as uh, Ephesus and all that, but they do have some occult worship. And one of them is Apollo. Apollo is called son of God because the chief god is Zeus, and the son, Apollo is the son of Zeus. Therefore, it's known as the son of God. And there's, there's also a female oracle named Sam Bath. And it was to the church operating in this city that Jesus sent this letter. We do not know who founded this church. It is possible that the gospel was brought to Tyatira by Lydia, as we already mentioned in Acts chapter 16, who was saved in Philippi. It is possible. We do not know. Uh, or something, it might have been evangelized by believers from Ephesus. But there is one thing we know for sure, and that is while the church in Tyatira might have been founded by a woman, it was certainly being confounded by a woman. 
There were serious problems in the church of Thyatira, and the Lord now comes with a word tailored just for them and their need. Very severe words that I think, personally, as I study through the seven churches, I think this is one aspect of it that we really, as a church here in Pathway, uh, need to take heed of. Because I, as I look at the, 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 the situation in this part of the world and how the world has changed and how the church really need to take heed of what Jesus mentioned here before we become completely irrelevant. So that's the first thing I want to mention about the city of Thyatira. The second thing in verse 19 uh, is the commendation. Commendation. These are the words. Let me read again in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God. You see, there's a pun there because of the Apollos who was known as Son of God. Here, emphasize Son of God, that Jesus is truly the Son of God. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And then verse, bronze is always associated in the Bible about judgment. And here, eyes that God, Jesus can see all things and He's coming with judgment. And in verse 19, is some of the commendations, some of the things that they did right. And here in verse 19, Jesus said, I know your deeds, your love, and faith. I know your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. There are six things here uh, that Jesus mentions. I know your deeds. So this fellowship had hard workers that were known for their actions, not just their beliefs. They, they, they put their action, uh, beliefs into action, work. I know your deeds. I know your love. Out of the seven churches, this is the only church they comment about their love. Uh, the church at Tyra, in contrast to Ephesus, had love for many people. Uh, in fact, they are the, as I said, they are the only church that Jesus commended for having love. But this could proved to be their downfall, maybe they have misunderstood what love is all about. Just like in our modern day generation, I do think that we have poorly defined what love really is. Love becomes tolerant, means accepting, just, just let people do whatever they want. You cannot oppose anything, you cannot prevent anything, and that is love. Just don't put anything there to prevent people from doing what they want, that is called love. But that is not love. So Jesus comment on their, their deeds, their love, their accommodating, their good, their faith, their deeds and love were motivated by their faith in Christ. And then their service. Uh, this church was heavily involved in ministry and in serving others. And perseverance. They had patience. They have endurance. They have steadfastness. They persevere despite of uh, persecution and all that. And then lastly, it mentioned that they are doing more than you did at first. That means they were growing in their faith. They were not just resting in something God did for them in the past, but they are doing more in the sense. So those are the wonderful words of commendation by Jesus to the church in Thyatira. So we look at the city. These are the commendation. But what I want to look at more is the number three from verses 20 to 23. 
I decided to put it confrontation. You can put it condemnation, you can put it criticism, you can call it counsel, but I think the words here are so strong, uh, I, I put confrontation. Jesus confronted them with some things that they did wrong, which is so incredible. Verse 20 to 23. Let me read to you uh, these four verses first, and then I'll just uh, unpack it for you. Verse 20. Despite the commendation, Jesus said in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. As I mentioned, Ephesus was strong in doctrine but lacked love. But Thyatira was strong in love. But then again, I qualify that they probably misunderstood what love is. They're almost strong in love but they're weak in doctrine. They weren't willing to disagree with anyone about doctrinal heresies. I mean, it is, it is very common for churches to polarize in one of these two extremes, usually. Either they will have full heads and empty hearts, or full hearts and empty minds. It reminds me of a book written by Os Guinness many years ago called Fit body, fat minds. That in an age where we are so fanatical with, with our, how we look in terms of our health and, and how fit we are, we don't spend time training our mind to be fit. So it's a fit bodies, but fat minds. God, God demands actually both sound doctrine and love. Either polarization is deadly. We should excel in both virtues, the love part, as well as our beliefs, beliefs and behavior. The doctrine parts also need to be strong. Just a table salt is a compound, a mixture of two elements, sodium and chloride. Both of these elements are poisonous by themselves. Sodium is an alkaline metal, can be explosive if added to water. And chlorine is by itself a highly poisonous gas. So if you in ingest either sodium or chloride alone, you will die. But if you put them together properly, they become known as sodium chloride, common table salt. And so it is the same with doctrine and love. They must be found together. One without the other can lead to dangerous imbalance. But combined, they provide flavor and health to the body of Christ. 
as I already mentioned, it seems to say that some say that this church was strong on love, that therefore their love is so wrongly defined that they almost accommodate everything, any and everything. They cannot see themselves standing up to confront something that is wrong or unhelpful. Maybe they have misunderstood what love is. Love component must always include uh, truth. Without truth, I don't know whether we can actually fully uh, say that it is love. The part of component of love, truly love, always include truth. That is why Paul in Ephesians says, isn't it, in chapter 4, speaking the truth in love. Without truth is brutality. Without, no, without love is brutality. Without truth is purely sentimentality. And, but with truth and love, it is balanced. It is the right way to go. Jesus said the church in Thyatira tolerated Jezebel. Now, we cannot be certain whether there is really such a lady by the name of Jezebel. I don't know whether her name is really Jezebel. I cannot imagine anyone uh, would name their daughter Jezebel, even though Jezebel actually means chaste. C-H-A-S-T-E is a beautiful name. But because it is associated with an Old Testament character of, of, of Jezebel, it, it is synonymous with wickedness, evil, that almost like Judas, you know, it's such a wonderful name. But because of uh, Judas Iscariot, ever since then, nobody dared to name their son Judas. Even though Judas, there's a, there's a guy called Judas Maccabees. He was a hero in Jewish history. Uh, but, the name has been forever tainted by Judas Iscariot, almost like uh, Bin Laden. Bin Laden is a, is a, is a great name in, in the Arabic world because uh, Osama Bin Laden's father was a, was a great developer, always uh, worked with a king. And, but because Osama Bin Laden uh, has forever tarnished this name of Bin Laden in a sense. And so we cannot be certain. Maybe, maybe there is a, a lady by the name of Jezebel, or it is just a, a metaphorical way of mentioning this woman, uh, signifying her evilness and wickedness, because she represents the despicable woman from 1 Kings that you can read about in chapter 16 onwards. And if you remember, King Ahab was a king in the northern kingdom, maybe seven or eight king, I can't remember. And she, King Ahab, he was... He was he was basically the most evil and dirty and demonic king that ever reigned in Israel. And he married this evil woman called Jezebel. And Jezebel was the wife of this wicked king Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16. She was a wicked daughter of a Gentile king. She was a devoted worshipper of the god Baal, as we are familiar with, and she kept up to 850 prophets of that wicked, sensual religion. She herself has that. And, and of course, uh, Baal was a fertility god and his prophets and priests were no more than temple prostitutes. And Baal was worshipped through vile sexual acts and gross wickedness. And when Jezebel came to Israel, when she married King Ahaz, she brought her perverted religion with her and she led her weak knee husband to follow her gods 
and thus influence Israel to seek and worship Baal instead of Yahweh God, Jehovah. And she even did her best to kill every man of God, every prophet she tried to kill. And Elijah had an encounter with her and he went after Elijah. And uh, thankfully, he went after all the prophets and then there was another prophet by the name of Obadiah. Obadiah had to shield the prophet. He kept 100 prophets, 50-50 in two caves just to protect them because Jezebel wanting to just eliminate all these prophets. And, uh, and you might remember the story of, of, of Ahaz and, and especially when he had this desire for a vineyard owned by a man by the name of Nabal in 1 King chapter 21. You can read all about that. It was Jezebel. Oh, since you want that vineyard, I have, I have a way of getting it for you, King Ahaz. And, he, and she actually went on to arrange for the murder of Nabal so that Ahab could have the vineyard. And because of that, this particular act alone prompted Elijah to pronounce God's sentence upon King Ahaz and Jezebel. He told Ahaz that Jezebel would be eaten by dogs in 1 Kings chapter 21. And believe it or not, when you fast forward to 2 Kings chapter 9, uh, this was literally fulfilled when Jehu, uh, after a few kings later, also Northern Kingdom, one of the kings, when Jehu commanded Jezebel's servants to throw her down from a second floor window. After she put on her makeup, she combed her hair nicely, and she was thrown down from second floor. Uh, they did, and Jehu drove his chariots over her body, he went into the house, had a meal, and commanded the servants to bury her. But when they actually came out to retrieve her body, all that was left was her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands because the dogs had eaten the rest. And Jezebel had came to be identified with wickedness and idol worship. And so here in Revelation chapter 2, to the church in Thyatira, Jesus is saying to the church, you have allowed these prophets, whether it's Jezebel or like this wicked person, this self-appointed prophetess, whoever she was, was guilty of leading the people away from the true worship of God. I suspect, it said, it, it, you look at the verse with me, it, it says that he led them to sexual immorality and eating food sacrifice to idols. Remember I said that the city of Thyatira has a lot of girls. The girls, usually they have worship of pagan gods. They have festivals, they pray, they worship, they sacrifice the food there, and then they eat together. That is just normal meetings. And, and usually it, it includes immoral affairs involving drunkenness, drug abuse, sexual immorality, and all that kind of things. So uh, uh, these kind of meetings would also involve meal and would either begin or end with a sacrifice to a pagan god. And so when some of the pagans in Thyatira were saved, they started coming to church. 
But a lot of them, because of work purposes and all that, they still continue to involve in this kind of practices with the guild. If they refuse to join the guilds and, and therefore they will be unemployed. So as such, they continue to practice and participate in the pagan rituals and compromise their testimonies. And this particular prophetess influenced them to, to say that there's actually nothing wrong. You can continue to do both as a believer and as well as do that. And many scholars believe that Jezebel was encouraging the church to join the trade guilds of Thyatira, even though they would mean giving honour to the guild god or goddess, which included participating in the festivals where they sacrificed food to idols. She wanted the church to embrace the world, even if that meant fully compromising your beliefs to reach people with love. So, there is a form of Gnosticism, which is a heresy in the first century. You can read about it in 1 John, where, where John actually deals with that very strong. There's a form of Gnosticism, believe that your soul and your body are separate. You can do whatever you want to your physical body, but it will not affect your soul. They are separate. You can be both. You can do both. So, so, Jezebel may be that kind of prophetess that is influencing uh, the church down the pathway that there's actually nothing wrong and the leadership in the church allows such kind of thing to flourish in the church. Or one step still like the world and then coming on to the church is still the same. It's compromising the fundamentals of our Christian faith. And that is where I want to explore now in this part and give you some practical information here before I move down towards the end. I want to sidetrack a little bit, give you some implication of how, what does it apply now to the church that we are now at the moment. You know, people like to distinguish between progressive and conservative, even churches and all that, also talks about that, about certain views. Are you progressive or, or are you conservative? Um, that kind of things. And, and church is the same. There are some, some churches are proud to identify themselves as a progressive church. Um, progressive Christianity. I find sometimes when you go down the pathway, it's a sprinkle of New Age, a pinch of some of the remnants of the seeker movement, a dash of the emerging church and a healthy dose of the prosperity gospel and, and they kind of put it in, in a blender and add in a healthy dose of whatever uh, the world is teaching at the moment and pour it out, you now have a compromised church. And if you serve under an effect, attractional entertainment church model, and so a compromised church is less about the King of Kings, the heart of God and the cross of Christ, and more about building institutions unto yourself, legacies and egos. It is less about truth, substance and the Bible, and more about men's hopes, men's desires, and men's purposes. And the starting point is always meant. Truth compromised for numbers, substance compromised for money, Foundations compromised for legacy, 
and righteousness compromise for conformity. New Age, prosperity, gospel, progressive, attractional, entertainment, emerging, self-help, the social gospel, the pop psychology, and together bits and pieces from all of these movements have given us what I call a compromised church. A church no longer focused on the glory of God, but on man's desires and wants because the starting point is always man, human, and not God. And so let me very quickly, without going into very detail, I, I can understand the time factor as well, uh, I want to give you very quickly five characteristics of a compromised church. The first one is there's compromised church always has a desire to fit in with the culture. We always are obsessed with being relevant, fitting in, so that people see the church as cool and still relevant. I mean, how does the church that is solid suddenly become tolerant of heresy and sin? How, how from one to become like that? It isn't always sudden, actually, as we all know. As uh, Pastor Caroline given the analogy of a, a frog hopping into the, a pot of water and, and it's steaming slowly, it will warm up. We, we, we are growing up in a culture that embraces postmodernism. Of course, it's already a, a, a full-blown postmodernism. It is this postmodernism, it is a whole system that basically teaches that we can't really know anything for sure. And that, tr that truth changes all the time. And as long as you believe it personally enough, then it is true for you. In other words, there is no absolute right and wrong. And if you can't allow me to believe what I believe, you are racist or bigot and you are intolerant. Albert Moller, uh, one of the Baptist guys in America, he said, the problem with cultural Christianity is that the culture always predominates over the Christianity. Always take the precedent over Christ. As much as people want to contextualize and, and make it relevant, but the relevant part always takes precedence over the gospel. And John Stott, the late John Stott, great statesman, he said, probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. And so the first mark of, of a compromised church, first character, is it always this desire to fit in with the culture, to make it as relevant as possible. I always stand by what I believe. The truth is always relevant. Always relevant. Doesn't matter when or what, truth is always relevant. Secondly, it's a failure to de rightly define sin. Many, many churches nowadays, they no longer use the word sin in the church because it's far just too offensive. Sin is redefined. It is no longer what the scripture uh, defined as lawlessness, missing the mark, rebellion, treason, idolatry, breaking God's law and commands. And many churches start to use language like struggle, disease, mistake, disorder, tolerance. We, we, let's, com let's confess our mistakes to the Lord. It is slowly cheapening reducing the full force of the meaning of sin in the Bible. And therefore, it's hardly mentioned in a compromised church. 
I don't know how, what kind of gospel you can preach without sin and without receiving Jesus as your Savior. The whole gospel is about Jesus dying for your sin. The whole purpose of Jesus coming to earth is precisely to die for our sin. And if you, if you take away that, uh, then the gospel becomes just, just a self-help to help you maximize your life here on earth and, and empower you to achieve whatever you want to achieve, and which is the current mode of the gospel nowadays. Number three is forsaking absolute truth for relativism. Forsaking absolute truth for relativism. Today, there seems to be only one absolute thing, and that is, absol- that is relativism. Everything is relative. There is no absolute or objective universal truth. I'm free to follow my truth. You are free to follow yours. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. It is personal preference. This way of looking at truth is called relativism. As Francis Schaeffer many years ago says, modern man has both their feet firmly planted in mid-air. That is relativism. What's true for you need not be true for anyone else and cannot be true for everyone else. Nothing and absolutely nothing is true for everyone. And so he let D.A. Carson Say that new, now tolerance means that you must not say that anybody is wrong. You have to say that all positions are equally valid. Pope Benedict says we are moving towards a dictatorship of relativism which does not recognize anything as for certain and which has, which has as its highest goal one's own ego and one's own desires. That is actually relativism. You are your own God. You define everything. You define what is right. You define your own truth. You are your own God. You are your own dictator. It's worthwhile repeating the last line of what's been for certain and that and which has its highest goal, one's own ego and one's own desires. Relativism. The compromised church. Number four, which I think is very important, is moving close-handed issues into open-handed ones. Let me explain. Moving from close-handed issues into open-handed ones. You know, there are some doctrine of the church expound in the scripture that to me is non-negotiable. The problem with compromised churches is that we start, we begin to move from this non-compromised issue, non-negotiable issue, to this level where we begin to open up and discuss. And oh, maybe, 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 and then f- very soon and surely, then it will become something else. The Christian believe there are open-handed issues and close-handed. There are some matters, there are secondary issues we cannot be dogmatic about, which is true that I just mentioned about uh, two weeks ago in my sermon. But there are some issues we cannot negotiate. It's called non-negotiable. And we must never ever begin to open the close-handed issues for debate. And this begins with questioning the foundational biblical doctrine and then the question gets considered and supposition gets formed and then those turn into arguments to defend and before you know it, we have a full-blown heresy. Because you allow it. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, an open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful. We should. 
but an, op- but an open mind about ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reason, is idiocy. If a man's mind is open on these things, let his mouth at least be shut. Meaning to say that there are some fundamental non-negotiable issue. It will be detriment to the church if you move it to another level and becoming open it up and discuss. The minute you go down there, you are already one step down the road. Few, I'll give you one example. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine rang me and asked me, Pastor, I attend a, a Baptist church. I went to the Bible study. And in that Bible study, they happened to talk about uh, heaven and hell. And I was one of the leaders. We you know, talked about, we discussed about that. And then he said, I was surprised that there is this view that he's not aware of. Of course, if you, you read into theology, you know there's this view about hell. Uh, he said, I, I'm not aware of it. There's this view called annihilationism. Annihilate, you know, as in, or it's called extinctionism. Uh, annihilate it. Annihilationism is the belief that unbelievers will not experience an eternity of suffering in hell but will instead be extinguished after death. Meaning to say that if you don't believe in Christ, when you die, you cease to exist. You annihilate, you, you, you become nothing, you cease to exist anymore. Which of course is not the biblical position that's always there. The doctrine of hell is real in the scripture. Eternal heaven, eternal hell. Uh, and and the, the, the way that we begin to go down this path is, is very attractive in the sense because they ask very strong emotive questions to you by saying, would you as a father or mother punish your child forever? You as a father, would you punish your son forever? You as a mother, would you punish your daughter forever? If you as a parents will not punish your children forever, why would God do that? How can God punish someone forever? Yeah, that's true, isn't it? God is a loving God. And therefore, they begin to entertain and dig up and, and come up with this kind of position and, and entertain it and, and grow it. And, and, and therefore, there are many mega. Rob Bell, you know, you can read about him in America. Uh, used to have a series called Numa that I, I, I like to use for my, for my young people. And, and it, when you grow down the pathway slowly, you will move with, towards those kind of directions. So the, the fourth thing about the compromise is, is moving close-handed issues into open-handed ones. Some doctrinal positions in the Scripture are so solid that you cannot move that towards open discussion. It is what it is. No matter how much is your reasoning, no matter how emotionally you feel about it, I would trust any time the Scripture than my own reasoning. For a simple reason that because I'm a fallen creature, I can reason wrongly, I can feel wrongly because I'm a fallen creature. Whereas God's words is supreme and direct us when we are confused. That is why you say it's a lamb unto our feet, isn't it? and light unto our path, precisely because we cannot sometimes trust our own reasoning. The scripture is there to, to be our light and our lamp, in a sense. Lastly, 
Lastly, uh, the, another marks of it is failing to take a stand for truth. A compromised church, one of the characteristics is they fail to take a stand for truth. And precisely, the church of Thyatira, they fail to take a stand and they allow Jezebel, the prophets, to continue to reign there, to influence the church members down this pathway. But one of the characteristics, the fifth one, of a compromised church is always failing to take a stand for truth. The Bible is very clear on that. There are so many verses. I could just read through a few for you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 20-21. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Guard it. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wise tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Titus chapter 1, 10 to 13, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deceptions, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in, they will be sound in the faith. Titus chapter 3, verse 9, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. So there you go, on and on and on. In 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul warned this kind of thing he will not tolerate and he will always speak up. He will always speak up. And I think one of the mark of a sound church is you have to speak up when there are heresies abounding in around the culture. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, said it best. He said, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Silence is betrayal. And so, contrary to what people think speaking up means prohibiting something is, uh, is, 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 is wrong or unkind or cruel or rude or whatever, the Bible tells us, Scripture tells us, sometimes fundamental things you have to stand up to prevent people from sliding down a very dangerous slope that will bring them to path of no return. So those are the extra five things that I put under point number three on, on uh, confrontation. And then look at verse 20 again. And sorry, verse 21. Jesus said, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And therefore, the punishment came upon her and those who are influenced by her teaching. The last point, the last C I want to give you is from the cities, commendation, uh, confrontation. The last C, of course, is the crown, the reward of those who stand firm to the end. And that is verse 24 all the way right down to 29. Here are some of the comforting words, some of the, the crown, the reward of those who stand firm. Verse 24, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, because not all are influenced by prophetess uh, 
Jezebel. He said, I say to the rest of you, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. See, Jesus called this Satan's so-called Satan deep secrets, something that's so profound, you know, like Gnosticism. You need to have some kind of special knowledge of God to reveal to you this knowledge. To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, the comforting word Jesus says to this group of people who did not follow Jezebel is, I will not impose any other burden on you. That's it. I will not impose any other burdens on you. But hold fast. Hold fast. I won't impose anything on you, but hold fast to what you already have until I come. You don't need anything extra. Christ is sufficient. The whole book of Colossians tells us that for those who study with me in the KYB. Christ is sufficient. I won't impose anything and ask you to hold on to what you already have. Hold fast to what you have. You know, some... You know, our spiritual life is, is, we grow in spiritual life by subtraction, not addition. Subtraction, not addition. We go down the pathway of spirituality of subtraction, not adding more. We have to unlearn many things. Spirituality has much to do with subtraction than it does with addition. Most of the spirituality has largely become a matter of addition. This is spiritual consumerism. But trying to attain more and more. Yet the counterintuitive nature of Jesus' journey shows it is not at all about getting, attaining, achieving, performing or succeeding. Jesus' spirituality is more, much more about letting go of what we do not need anyway. It it. it more often involves unlearning than learning. It is the way of descent, or the Catholic will call it the way of the cross. Spirituality of subtraction, not addition. Hold on to what you have. That's all. Christ is sufficient. Rely on Christ, depend on Christ. And then he said, these are the reward. Two things. You're going to have authority over with me in future range. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. In the future, in the millennial kingdom, we will reign with Christ. And then here it also mentions one last thing. I will also give that one the morning star. Morning star. And finally, he said, I will give these people who hold fast to my teaching, no more burden, hold fast to my teaching, not only that you will reign with me in the future, but you will also be given a morning star. What is a morning star? You know, you know, Satan is known as the morning star in one reference. And Jesus, in Revelation also mentioned that he's the morning star. You know, the planet Venus 
has long been known as the morning star because it appears on the horizon just before the sun. And when you see Venus, you know the sun is coming up soon. Day is at hand. So the morning star represents hope for a new day. And the darkness is soon to be broken. But what does it mean for us to get the morning star? I think there is no verse clearer than in the same book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The morning star is Christ himself, which is the greatest possible thing he could promise his church. He will give us himself. We will see him face to face. We will be his and he will be ours. And Christ said, this you will receive. And so this is the church of Thyatira, about a city, compromised, not just only skirting, full-blown into it. And it is a warning to us in this modern-day church, are we letting the culture influence us or are we the church that is influencing the culture? Interestingly, the name Thyatira, as I mentioned already, it means sacrifice or unceasing sacrifice or sacrificial offering. Isn't it interesting? They as a church were willing to sacrifice their faith on the altar of compromise. And what began as a small compromise into a little false doctrine quickly became them sacrificing truth in order to accept others. Abandoning what is true for what is convenient. Let me close with the words of Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the reformer, when he appeared before what they call the Diet of Worms in 1521 to defend himself for saying some nasty things to the Pope and, and the leaders. And they asked him to recant what he written. And these are his final words. This is what he said. Martin Luther, he was summoned to the Diet in, of Worms in order to renounce or reaffirm his views in, in response to his writings. And this is what he says. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. So unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. I pray and I hope that we will have the courage to stand firm like Martin Luther on those fundamental things as we are surrounded by the constant changing world that is molding the church and pushing the church down a pathway to be like them and preach a gospel that is no gospel. May we be strong in this day and age 
that we need so badly. Will you join me in prayer now? Father, we just want to ask that you will protect the church, that we will be courageous in this day and age to learn to draw a line in the sand that we will not compromise on certain issues. Help us to be wise, to know how to distinguish between issues that we should handle, which issue we, we should compromise, and issue that we should not compromise, and dare to draw a line in the sands and be a church that will stay strong in this day and age where it's so hard to distinguish between uh, right and wrong and good and bad. Give us courage, give us wisdom. This we ask sincerely in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I invite you to uh, sing our closing song and end the service for this morning, remember uh, Kids Church, there's something on straight after the closing song, please lock on. Now I just invite you to close this, psalm, this morning's service with this beautiful song, This I Believe.